Welcome back to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez. And my name is Jen Tosleib. And today we have doctoral candidate Jared Joseph on the podcast to talk with us about corruption and organized crime. Jared Joseph is a doctoral candidate in sociology at the University of California, Davis, with designated emphasis in computational social science. He is a first-generation student and received his bachelor's degree in psychology and Japanese before transitioning to sociology for his doctoral work. He uses governmental data and computational methods to research abuses of power. His dissertation focuses on public harm by government officials at the local, state, and national level, and he received the American Sociological Association's Dissertation Research Improvement Grant for this work. Thank you so much for joining us, Jared. Thank you for having me. Okay, so a brief overview of what this episode is going to look like. First, we're going to ask some questions about the history of corruption, mainly in Chicago. Then we're going to talk a little bit about organized crime. And then again, situated in Chicago. And the reason for that is because our final topic is a paper that our guest wrote that is situated in Chicago and talks about corruption and organized crime and a little bit of network analysis, which our episode with Martin, which we learned we kept butchering his name. Sorry, Martin. His episode touched a lot on network analysis. And so with that being said, Jen, why don't you take us away? Okay. So we always start our podcast with this very broad definitional question because Mm -hmm. we're pretty concerned with definitions. We think they're important. And as with Every single time we've asked this question, I'm sure it's difficult to define. But our first question for you, Jared, is what is corruption? That is very difficult to define. And I don't think there is a single canonical definition that exists in the literature yet. Um, Because you can look at it from a strictly legal definition. There are like 17 specific laws that if you break it, you're guilty of corruption. But I think that's not how... The most people think about it. Corruption is inherently relational to what is ordinary and not corrupt. And the term is sort of very morally charged. When people think of a corrupt politician, I don't think they're thinking of, you know, they broke that specific law. It's a feeling that they have violated the trust that has been placed into them. And I think people are pretty good at picking up on, you know, those sorts of things. I think people are good at telling when things aren't fair. So when I think about corruption, I typically take a public harm perspective. Like, are these individuals using their power to harm the public or benefit themselves personally? I think that's a common thread through all of the definitions that you'll see is that they're using power vested in them by some other entity to enrich themselves personally. So when I think of corruption, that is the sort of defining characteristic I think about. So most of what we're talking about involves state actors. So how and why do state actors engage in corruption? The why is always difficult. That's the yeah. whole field of criminology. But the the sort of broad answer is corruption is the mechanism by which people can convert their power into profit. Corruption is the way that they can take this thing that they have for a temporary amount of time, the office they hold, the prestige associated with it, and convert it into something lasting for themselves. And so that seems to be why corruption, and we'll get into organized crime later, go hand in hand. So many people, they know like the large scale, like the widely reported political wrongdoings that involve corruption. One example was California representative Duke Cunningham, who had to resign after it came to light that he was accepting bribes from defense companies. However, crimes of corruption seem to occur every day, even like on a smaller scale. Can you give us some examples of what your more common or not as widely reported crime of corruption would look like? Mm-hmm. So yeah, corruption happens all the time. There. There's sort of the the grift and oiling of hands that make many things work. It happens whenever a government official picks one contract over another for a building or some service because he got a nicer gift basket from one of them. You know, lobbying on the federal level 
It specifically says in the legal code that lobbying should not affect the voting behavior of our representatives, but studies show over and over that it does. But you know, going back to our, our fuzzy definition of corruption, is that corruption? Can we prove that the lobbying expenditure influenced their votes? It's remarkably yeah. difficult. My current work, my dissertation, asset forfeiture is a large portion of it. And so one of my favorite stories to tell is in Georgia, there was a sheriff who used asset forfeiture funds, police agencies received from seizing money and objects from things they think is associated with a crime. They used those funds to buy the sheriff a high-performance muscle car that he drove to and from work. Again, is that corruption? I don't know, but those sorts of things happen. Be nice, though. It was a nice car. (laughs) Sounds like a nice car. (laughs) Okay. So when we're trying to understand then like why crimes of corruption are occurring or those, you know, more fuzzy questions, can we understand this type of crime using our traditional theoretical perspectives like social learning theory, social control, self-control, so on? Or are there very specific theories devoted specifically toward explaining corruption? Mm -hmm. I think that the traditional theories struggle with corruption and white collar crime more generally. Sally Simpson has a good American sociological review article trying to look at traditional theories of crime and how they work or don't work with white collar crimes. But I think we just have to sort of accept and understand that many of our canonical theories were made with you know street crime in mind. They were looking at violent, you know, on the ground sort of offenses, which corruption and white collar crime more generally typically isn't. There are specific theories that specifically say we work for white collar crime, like self-control, but that's never really convinced me because the whole argument of self-control is like, well, just the people with the lowest self-control commit crimes, but white collar crime and other you know, forms of corruption, they take years. These are large schemes sometimes. And I think it's hard to argue that those people don't have self-control. There is some work on personality theories, like the uh, dark triad of Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. But as a sociologist, I find those unsatisfying because I want to see the systems that allow corruption and these things to persist because the systems might be able to be fixed. Individual psychological characteristics, we're not going to be able to do anything about those really. So when I'm working on things, I've sort of come to terms that my dissertation sort of tacitly takes a routine activities sort of lens and perspective because I want to see what we can do to the structures of our governance, how we might be able to alter it to make corruption less feasible, less likely, and less possible. That's the sort of orientation I find myself slipping into. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, like a routine activity approach, like that's very macro. So would you say that that's the right approach for something like this instead of something more at the individual level? I think it's it's what I gravitate to because I, it's, I think it's slightly more hopeful. <laughs> like we, right. if, if these things are structural, we may be able to do something about them. If we specifically look for ways to police like individual people by, you know, increasing punishments or something like that. I, I think we've seen over time that like general deterrence doesn't work for one thing. So like how, I look at it from a structural perspective just because I want to have some sort of hope that we can do something about it, I suppose. Okay. I can respect that. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. So I knew this before. I can't remember where I learned this, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't. So you open your your paper by stating that Chicago is the windy city, not because of anything weather related, but because of hot wind from politicians. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a historical rundown of corruption in Chicago? So I'm, I'm not a historian, but I did read a lot that eventually got cut from the paper we'll talk about. I can give you two sort of recommendations of good books I read from historians about the history of Chicago. Sam Mitrani wrote a book about the history of the Chicago police, which I learned from his book was only officially made a thing in 1855, which seems remarkably recent for some reason to me that seems very strange. 
but that the police in Chicago were born out of an environment of private security in like forces. Like you would pay these people to protect your property or to go do the investigations to find things that were stolen or to solve murders. Like you would just pay these people individually. And so while the Chicago police eventually professionalized over time, that was the environment that it grew out of. And I think that's very telling when you start thinking about corruption as this sort of, you know, greasing the wheels sort of things where if you give a little bit of money, maybe things will happen. In terms of the political side, the mayors by Paul Green and Melvin Holly essentially just goes through the mayors of Chicago over time and all of the ways that they used their discretionary ability to create policy and to selectively enforce policy. So I thought that gave a good overview in terms of the political legal side of how people in power always have some discretion on what they choose to actually actively go after. So again, you can't always label it as corruption, but a big player in my book, in my paper was uh, Mayor Big Bill Thompson, who as part of his campaign platforms just gets up on stage and says, I'm not enforcing prohibition laws. You know, that's, that's a use of discretion that is exactly counter to what's on the books, but that's what actually happened. That's the guidance the police followed. So I think reading about the individual sort of policymakers over time and seeing how they use their discretion can give you a good idea of corruption over time and the sort of attitudes around that discretion and what and was and was not corrupt. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. The like introduction of your paper that we're going to talk about was I really enjoyed reading it. And that, I'm sad that you had to cut a bunch of the historical stuff out of it, but it, I'm sure it was, it was interesting. Yeah. It was a fight, but I, I'm happy that I still got to keep big Bill Thompson in there because he was such yeah. a character. Yep. Yeah. So I have a quick follow-up question because I'm pretty sure we don't necessarily ask this later on, but what is it about Chicago that makes it such a prime spot for, for this type of work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of criminology done in Chicago, right? I mean, the, the history of the Chicago school as being like one of the places that founded these schools of thought means a lot of on the ground work has always been done in Chicago. And then because you have these rich ethnographies and those sorts of works later on, more quantitative people can come in and use those as inspiration. And so I think it is a somewhat of a feedback loop of Chicago has always been one of the places to study crime. And the fact that it is a major metropolitan city in the United States, it's not coastal so that, you know, it's in the middle of the country. So it, it doesn't have the extreme cultural poles of, you know, the East and West coast, I think also makes it a pretty common testing bed for a lot of theory and a lot of research. So I think those are some of the, the bigger reasons in terms of corruption specifically, at least in my time period, you know, we had major characters, which led to major news reporting, which led to now an archive of things that I can look at, but which other cities you know, don't have to the same degree. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. So we've had a couple of people on the podcast during this fall 2021, kind of talking about white collar and corporate crime. And we like asking the question of how difficult is it to identify and punish these types of crimes. So when we're specifically thinking about corruption, and I think you've alluded to this a few times, how difficult is it to actually specifically point out and therefore punish individuals engaged in corruption? Very difficult. That's one of the key questions in my dissertation is like, what can we do? Corruption prosecutions declined significantly in the past few years for political reasons, mainly. But to, to go after political actors and say they are corrupt is difficult for a number of reasons, mainly because, one, they control the legal environment. They're setting the rules for themselves. And so if someone thinks that something they're going to do might get them in trouble, they can ultimately just change the law to make sure it doesn't happen. But alternatively, you, when you're going after people you think are being corrupt, you're going after the people with the most sort of social and cultural capital of how the legal system works. 
You're going after politicians, you're going after lawyers, you're going after public servants. And these are the people that know the legal code best, especially in their area. So their ability to use that expertise to avoid prosecution, I think is much higher. And it's always, when you go after someone for corruption, you usually have to prove intent, that they were intending to do something. And that's a whole lot harder than you know, looking at security footage. Yes, that person stole this thing. The end. So it's, I think it's remarkably difficult. Sounds really, I mean, just the political aspect of it, because we've talked mostly about like corporations within white collar and corporate crime versus the political side of it which just seems to add a whole nother layer of difficulty in something that's already difficult to police and force. Okay. So let us move a little bit into organized crime and organized crime in Chicago. And so we've had a couple guests come on already and talk about organized crime. Cecilia Meneghini and Martin Bouchard have both spoken about it on the podcast, but Both of them spoke about it outside of the United States in the European context, mainly Italy. Can you briefly tell us how you define organized crime and then what does this look like in a U.S. context? So my sort of co-author and I take the stance that organized crime definitionally is one concerned with controlling illegal markets and two is involved in some sort of corruption. Those are sort of the features that take a crime group and transform them into organized crime. But I want to make it clear that organized crime isn't some monolithic like Costa Nostra, like countrywide, there's like a cabal of some people in a back room controlling all of it. That was a legitimate theory for a long time, that there was one overruling family that controlled all organized crime in the country. That's that's not really the case. It's you know research from... Jay Albanese, Chambliss, who is a favorite of mine, more recently, Daniel Della Posta. Organized crime is a local clustered affair, which will then reach across and work with other groups sometimes. And so I, I sort of want to dispel the idea that organized crime is a monolith. It is individual local hustles most of the time, which when we look at my paper, we'll sort of see how that can change and how organized crime can evolve into something larger. In the United States, what kind of gave rise to organized crime groups? Was there any one specific thing or was it multiple things? Mm -hmm. I think sort of what gives rise to organized crime, it's the potential to make lots of money Mm -hmm. if you break the law. I can talk about Chicago specifically in that The reason organized crime became such a huge thing in Chicago in my time period is because prohibition was enacted. And all of a sudden, there were a lot of people who wanted illegal good and would pay money to get that illegal good. There was just a massive opportunity for profit. And so people filled the void. They were organized because they worked with the politicians to make sure they wouldn't get cracked down on. They controlled the illegal market on alcohol, and they set up massive like logistic systems to make it happen. Like it, it was, it wasn't just organized crime definitionally. It was crime that was organized. They had, you know, during Prohibition Chicago, there were boats coming over from Canada. There were railway cars bringing it from the East Coast. There were, you know, agreements on prices. There was distilleries. There was processing. There was shipment to buyers, and all of it was done because there was a lot of money to be made. Okay, so when. We think about organized crime, at least, you know, how you see it in pop culture, in movies and TV shows, they'll usually show like this mafia family or this highly organized group. And they'll be talking about how they have Mayor X or Governor C or the police chief on their payroll, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Does the research support a strong link between a corrupt official and an organized crime group? I believe so. My co-author and I believe so too. Like I said earlier, I think one of the definitional components of organized crime is being involved in some way with state forces because the power of the state can make organized crime safer to operate. And then for political actors, working with organized crime is the way that they can actually make some money from their power. And there are you know, talking about these specific individuals that are always portrayed in media as like, oh yeah, we've got that person in our pocket. 
I can talk about my paper in the historical context that that happened. Like Al Capone mm-hmm. punched a mayor of a city in the face in front of his police force and nothing happened. There's also another antidote of money being ladled out by civic workers out of a hotel in Sherman bathtub to corrupt officials. So yeah, I think corrupt state actors contribute with their power to keep things going and they get money in return. So I think, you know, those players are necessary. Right. So we've talked about your paper for a while now. So let's jump into it and then expand from there. So the paper that we're talking about for this episode is authored by our guest, Jared Joseph, and his colleague, Chris Smith, who's at the University of Toronto. It's called The Ties That Bribe, Corruption's Embeddedness in Chicago Organized Crime. It was published in Criminology this year in 2021. And to provide just a very quick summary of the paper, it examines the embeddedness levels of corrupt politicians and law enforcement within organized crime in Chicago. Mainly, the paper examines how corruption varied in state resources and criminal contexts. And patterns were studied both pre-prohibition, so 1900 to 1919, and then during prohibition from 1920 to 1933 using network analysis. Does that provide a decent summary to jump into this? Yeah. Okay. So our first question, again, one that we ask every single time we do one of these episodes, is what was kind of the impetus behind writing this paper? Mm-hmm. So we've I've sort of touched on that corruption is usually seen as a grand affair. Mm-hmm. And when I started talking with Chris Smith, who is you know, my co-author and also my one of my earliest mentors, is that she had this data set on organized crime in Chicago and nobody had looked at the political aspect of it. And I saw this and I saw a way to look finally at a granular level, how corruption operates person to person. We can look at corruption as sort of a verb rather than an adjective of a person. And so I thought that I saw the opportunity to look at corruption in a very granular way. And so that was what I wanted to do with the paper. Okay. So we're going to get into this concept of embeddedness that you talk about. And this is a term that that Jen and I both use in our work. And you touch on this in your paper, talking about David Perusa's work and how he uses embeddedness for gang members. And you mentioned that, well, this term is frequently used, but there's a degree of conceptual and measurement ambiguity that stems from at least two places, right? Mm-hmm. In the paper, you and your colleague proposed two directions to clarify the ambiguity of the concept of embeddedness. Could you provide us with an overview of what these ambiguities are and then sort of give us the way that you use embeddedness in your paper? Mm-hmm. So in embeddedness was originally used by Polanyi. I think that's how you say his name to describe how the economy was embedded within history and culture and politics and society. And that's, I don't think that's a controversial thing to think about now, but over time it sort of became fuzzier as people applied it to their specific, you know, use cases. And it sort of came to generally mean people being deeply involved in something. And that's how we initially used it in this paper as well. And then, uh, in an earlier draft, reviewer two stung us on it and said, you know, you're, you're making a big deal about embeddedness, but you just sort of use it to mean this like deep involvement. And they, and they challenged us to really dig into the concept and sort of address this ambiguity. And so we let out a deep sigh and we did. And, you know, I think it made the paper better, but I ended up reading every paper in the journal of criminology that ever used the term embeddedness. And we think there were, if I remember the number right, there were 53 of them since Hagen used it, maybe. That sounds right. I think you include that in your paper. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so that, uh, and I, I saw how the concept sort of drifted and changed over time. And so in our paper, we kind of want to recenter it on this idea of embeddedness being the interweaving of social and economic action and sort of taking, again, the idea of someone being embedded from 
an adjective again back to a verb because we're doing social network analysis. We can look at the individual people and their relationships to each other and the activities they were involved in. And so we wanted to recenter embeddedness around economic behavior and provide a quantifiable way to measure it using social network analysis, which we did with three different metrics of degree centrality, eigenvector centrality, and then the sort of unique one, which was nestedness, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yep, later on. Right. So you mentioned that there is a symbiotic relationship between organized crime and corruption. Can you talk about this symbiotic relationship in more detail and why the concept of embeddedness is important when discussing malfeasance or wrongdoing by a public official, white collar crime and trust? So I've talked a bit about how I think corruption and organized crime go hand in hand. Yeah. But in these relationships between essentially organized criminals and political figures who have power to exploit. It's the embeddedness happens when they, when there is a long-term sort of trusting agreement that I think is more or less necessitated for corruption to happen over time. When our assumption is that organized crime can only exist because of the protection from the state, that inherently requires a sort of long-term orientation by these people and the mutual benefit they get from corruption. And so embeddedness is, or to be embedded, is the sort of verb of they're mixing this economic action and their own social situation because there has to be a large degree of trust and that is sort of generated by these long-term relationships. And without it, you know, most, most crimes require trust to, you know, be somewhat profitable in the long-term. And we think that organized crime and corruption just takes us to another level of intermixing the, the different worlds to make it work long-term. So, kind of to try and bring it all together. Can you talk to us more about the overlap of embeddedness, corruption, and organized crime? It's, and I feel like I've sort of covered this in that the organized crime and corruption are symbiotically linked. They exist together. And that embeddedness is the mechanism by which they interface with each other over time. They become embedded, they become intertwined, they become mixed in not only an economic layer, but a social layer and a personal layer that these relationships between the criminals and the politicians is what makes it work. I provide a few examples in the paper, like, you know, Big Bill Thompson being the biggest in that there were lines where, you know, known component associates were like, I'm for Big Bill hook, line and sinker. And Big Bill is for me, hook, line and sinker. Big Bill would received thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from Al Capone. And Al Capone specifically left one of his vacations early to come back to Chicago to give money to Big Bill to help him win re-election. Like these were long-term partners. We can't tell if they were friends, but they definitely there was an element of trust. They worked together in their goals and their ends. And I think that provides a good model for understanding how all these forces work together. Okay. So for your paper, you and your co-author use this data set that I had never heard about before, but sounds really cool. It's called the Capone database. Can you tell us a little bit more about this data set and then the unique aspects that your study specifically uses from this data that it doesn't sound like any other study has tapped into? No. So the Gabon database is the result of my co-author and advisor, Chris Smith, spending seven years in various archives. I think she eventually referenced over 5,000 documents, just finding the people and their connections between them during and around Prohibition in Chicago. And these include you know, news reports of X visited Y's house, people co-attending funerals together, being arrested together, going to dinner together, paying campaign contributions or known bribes, just any instance of 
known individuals interacting with each other during this time period in Chicago. And so we there are social relationships, criminal relationships, legitimate business relationships. And while Chris has done a lot of work on gender and crime using this data set, she just had a book come out, Syndicate Women, Gender and Networks in Chicago Organized Crime, which is an excellent read. If you at all are interested in this paper, go read that too. This paper, the ties that Bri was the first to look at the political aspect of it. When this all started, when I heard Chris present about her work, and she just offhandedly mentioned that there are also politicians and law enforcement officers in there, and that she had never looked at them. And I'm like, do you mean you've never looked at them? That's the most interesting thing I can think of. And so I sort of, I jumped on the opportunity to use it. So like I mentioned earlier, we already have an episode that kind of talks a little bit more in depth about network analysis, which is the method that you use. So we don't want to sort of get touch on it too in depth in this episode, but rather we want to focus more on the analytic strategy and the analysis itself. And so can you tell us briefly what the organized crime network looked like during the pre-prohibition era? Mm-hmm. So prior to prohibition, that would be 1900 to 1919 in our data set. Organized crime was relatively small and pretty clustered. There were, you know, as I mentioned earlier, localized clusters, sort of individual graphs, griffs, uh, hustles going on that involved more police officers and less politicians. And then there were bridges between them, essentially. If I can go on and talk about after and during prohibition, yeah. it became much more centralized. It became much more, it became way larger for one thing, it's like three or four times larger than pre-prohibition. There were just way more people, way more connections. And everything was centralized around a few sort of key players, a core group from which everything else sort of branched off of this hub and spoke sort of structure. And in that, we found that politicians essentially remained important and law enforcement officers did not. And so it was a marked change in terms of the structure overall, but we clued in on these specific actors and their position. And that's where our results eventually came out of as well. So overall, then kind of this network grew and the power from state actors shifted from police to politicians. It's interesting. So did it also, was it more like horizontal versus hierarchical before pre-prohibition and then it shifted or? It, yeah. Power centralized. It, it, became less of like individual hustles into mm-hmm. there was a clear group of most powerful people. Mm-hmm. And that was Capone and his gang. Not everybody involved in the network was necessarily directly reporting to Capone or anything like that. There wasn't a like clear one boss, but everything was associated with his network. There were very few isolates out about. So, yeah. Um. All right. So you already mentioned that when it comes to the embeddedness measure, there's three different measures that were part of that. And so can you elaborate a little bit on those and then talk about how you incorporated embeddedness into your network analysis to measure this network structural changes in organized or in criminal organizations? So we used two pretty common network metrics, which were degree centrality and eigenvector centrality. Degree is just the number of connections a person has, either connections to them or connections from them. And eigenvector centrality is commonly understood as a measure of popular friends in that uh, if you have a high eigenvector centrality, then you might not be all that central, but you are connected to people who are very central. The third measure was somewhat unique, and that was nestedness. And that came out of a paper by Moody and White. And it essentially measures how deeply an individual is involved in these hierarchical, think onion skinning of tightly bound groups. So if you start with the entire network as one group, and then you sort of cut off the least tightly attached people and that circle shrinks, then you cut off the next band and that shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. A person's nestedness is how many of those sort of onion skins down they're involved in. The idea being that if you are in more of these tightly bound groups, 
you are more embedded in that network because you don't get cut off from the rest of the group as we dig down. So we took all these measures, which are all you know, somewhat related, but they, they capture, as I said, different, different flavors, different nuances of how people can be important in the network. For our project, we took these measures and we looked at different classes of individuals. So those were non-state actors, just the regular criminals, law enforcement officers, and then politicians. And we compared these groups with each other within time periods. And we sort of showed that these metrics are different for these groups. There is something structurally different about where these people were positioned in the network, given these measures. And so that's where our network findings really came from. And then we supported it with all the history we sort of went over earlier. And I did some simulations, which I thought were cool. Yeah. So we've already started touching on some of your findings. Let's dig into them a little bit more. And so just to briefly talk about them, you focus on four different aspects and and we're going to focus on the first three as we believe that they should provide a good overview of the structural changes in your paper. And so you touched on, you know, so Chicago's organized crime landscape, but we wanted to ask you if you could sort of talk a little bit more specifically about the distribution of alcoholic beverages in 1920 to 1933 and how that specifically impacted the change and how organized crime looked in Chicago. Yeah. So as I mentioned, it centralized it. Organized crime now wasn't just about the brothels or the gambling dens pre-prohibition, those sort of localized you know, institutions that, you know, crime groups centered around. Now there was a central thing. There was the production and sale of alcohol that massive numbers of people could get involved in and were interconnected with each other doing. So that we argue is why the network grew so large is that there was a massive opportunity for profit. And it was easy for people to sort of join in and then become connected to this large component of organized crime because there were lots of jobs to be done. People could manufacture, people could transport, they could distribute. You know, there were, there were a ton of jobs that could be filled and there was a lot of appetite for illegal alcohol. You know, if politicians are up there campaigning, just saying, I will not enforce this law and people voted for them and that person won, People obviously want this thing regardless of what the law is. So there was just lots of opportunity and organized crime filled that void rather effectively. And so from the network perspective, that's what we saw. It just grew. It grew massively. And the point I was most interested in is how the state actors stayed involved. Talking about prohibition specifically, I mentioned it, that the politicians, despite the network growing massively around them, they remain central in that network. While contrastly, law enforcement was essentially pushed out towards the periphery. They never graduated beyond those individual sort of local hustles because they didn't have the sort of resources and power that politicians did is what I theorize. They're able to like alert someone if a raid is coming or you know send a police patrol the other direction compared to politicians who can just say, I'm not enforcing this law. You know, one of those is more useful as organized crime gets bigger and more powerful. That's the sort of stance I took. Okay. So I think then you just tapped into kind of this embeddedness composition and kind of what you expected to find and what you did find. So that was kind of the second main part of your findings, I believe. Is there anything you'd like to add regarding like the embeddedness aspect? Um, I think it was a pretty good summary of it. The, how we like to, how the core and I like to say it is that corruption climbed the political ladder along with the profits. Like if there is more profits to be made, if organized crime is more cemented and central, then they have needs for different resources and different political actors can offer those. So that's why we think this shift sort of occurred. So the third part of 
your result plots the relationship between the three embeddedness measures by group type. One on the three measures of embeddedness, uh, so degree, eigenvector, and nestedness, you found that they were interrelated and correlated, but that they were unequally distributed on organized crime. Can you tell us how these manifested in your results and what do these results mean? So yeah, all of them are, are related because they're all based on the same connections between people, but they do have their own nuances. So by comparing like the law enforcement against politicians for these measures, it gave us hints to how they were differently positioned, which is the sort of centrality I was mentioning earlier. So an example is for the relationship between eigenvector scores and nestedness for law enforcement is higher than for politicians and non-state actors. Like that relationship is stronger. So law enforcement, this helps show that law enforcement clustered in subgroups when organized crime was small and decentralized, but in general, they didn't connect to well-connected others. They didn't have that eigenvector. So their, their nestedness was sort of more important than their connection with other people for that group for law enforcement compared to, say, politicians who were more connected to more powerful people. So you can see two different sort of strategies of embeddedness emerging when you look at these, when you separate these groups out and sort of compare their different measures. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I think I said unorganized crime, and I'm pretty sure I meant organized crime. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so another one of your findings, and you've touched on this a little bit also, and I thought this was interesting, and it came from your descriptions was the proportion of corrupt state actors in Chicago. And so they were more proportionately pre-prohibition than during prohibition. And you also mentioned that there were differences between the eras and what this looked like and what corruption looked like. And so, you know, you've talked about the centrality of the actors and of power. And so just to wrap up, can you give us sort of like a quick short summary and tell us more about this finding? And so, because so what I noticed was the numbers increased, right? But the proportion shrank. Can you sort of maybe go into more detail about the centralization of power and why we are seeing this shrinking of proportion? Yeah, so it was surprising. Like we imagined as organized crime grew, that the number of corrupt state actors would grow with it. But that's not really what we saw. The, the groups changed differently. Like the network grew from you know, a few hundred people to nearly a thousand people in our, in, after prohibition was enacted in 1920. And so we expected that state actors would you know, similarly increase with the size of the network, but that didn't really happen, especially for politicians. Law enforcement, we talked about their centrality sort of became less. They were pushed to the edge, but their numbers also slightly decreased. And, you know, going back to my argument is I, we say that they didn't have the resources that was useful anymore. Politicians, on the other hand, despite the network growing such a massive amount, their numbers stayed pretty much exactly the same and their centrality was still significant. So despite everything else around them, becoming bigger, you would expect them to become more diffuse like everything else. They didn't. They remained important. They held their structural position. They, despite not growing in number, were still vitally important. And I think that speaks to the relationship aspect of things, as well as the unique ability of these political politicians, these actors to provide something to the important people in this network. They remained near the decision makers, despite you know what we'd expect them to be pushed around like everyone else. Like they're the ones that had the power to allow these things to happen without punishment, and so they maintained their centrality. Yeah. All right. So obviously, most of this research is from you know the early 1900s, and so thinking about today. You know, what are some of the implications that this study may have, both for the academic community, theoretically, 
practically, and then also for the general public and policymakers moving forward. So I hope our paper helps emphasize the symbiotic relationship between organized crime and corruption for academics. So if you're ever studying one, I think it's necessary to look at the other to consider it as a central facet of your paper. We show sort of practically how corruption changes and organized crime grows and the different resources that it might look for during different stages of its growth and development, organized crime. And we also have the huge literature review on embeddedness. And I hope someone just wants to look at the paper for that. I'd be happy because it it took a ton of work to reconceptualize embeddedness and really, really Mm -hmm. recenter it. For policy, I think the implications are somewhat similar to the academic ideas in that if, if you really want to fight organized crime, you also have to fight corruption. You have to look inwards if you want to make a difference. And as our paper shows, it only gets harder to fight corruption the longer it goes on and the more developed organized crime gets. It sinks its teeth into systems. It becomes harder and harder to dislodge. So I think for policy, if, if you want to fight corruption, you need to understand at what stage it's at. You need to know where to look. So I hope our paper can provide some sort of insight on how to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of corruption or things that seem like they would be corrupt nowadays. So yeah, it seems really useful and important to understand this, you know, bi-directional symbiotic relationship between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting you say you need to sort of understand what stage it's at because i mean i should probably should know better after you know being in in crim for for so long but i kept thinking you either are corrupt or you're not and sort of this idea of oh there might be a continuum or stages to this i think is an interesting way to look at it and i hope like i think network analysis is particularly great for that because it, it can take that that adjective of being corrupt and turn it into an action that we can study. Like there are instances of doing corruption. Like you accepted the bribe, you, you know, signed the contract despite, you know, other better offers being available. I think just in general, not just our paper, but I think network analysis is great for this sort of thing for taking states and making them studyable instances so that's one of the reasons I'm a fan of the method. Yeah, no, we definitely come to appreciate it more as we've talked to people who've done network analysis. And it's like, I didn't really know much about it until this semester, really, when we started all of a sudden finding all of these people that are doing network analysis and we've been reading work on it. And yeah, it's cool technique that I'm interested in exploring more, so... Yeah, absolutely. Well, those are all the questions that we have for you, but are there any other comments or closing remarks that you might have? Something that maybe we sh- you were hoping we'd ask you, but we didn't. Well, I just want to sort of close and say that corruption is an important issue to study academically, especially in the United States. I think a lot of time when people think about studying corruption, you have these international studies or international comparisons or you know these sorts of things where they think about corruption as a as something that goes away as countries develop, quote unquote. And I I don't think that's the case. I think corruption just changes shape as time goes on. And I think it's still very much applicable in the United States. One book I read in you know, preparation for this and my dissertation and other things is Smuggler Nation. I can't remember the author's name, but it's a book just all about how the United States was founded by a bunch of smugglers and corrupt individuals. And it's been here ever, ever since the country was started. Like the most profitable job in the early colonies was the port inspector because they could, yeah. you know, ask for something when goods were coming in. And so I, the thing I want to stress is that you know, this corruption is not a problem of yesteryear or of other places. I think there is plenty of room to study it in the United States. And I think we need to, I think it's important. And so I hope, you know, I can make my paper, our paper with, was one small contribution to that endeavor. Yeah, 
no definitely i mean you like you hear like the big news stories that come out right so even that should give you like that's just like the tip of the iceberg but that should give us a sense that it's not like it's not dead right Mm -hmm. not going away anytime soon either (laughs) all right well thank you very much we really enjoyed this discussion is there anything you would like to plug anything we should be on the lookout for from you my dissertation will be done eventually (laughs) if you want to see or were you on the market this year or next year I applied to a academic job, a single one. Okay. And I got an interview and I'm still waiting to hear. Cool. But I'm looking at government jobs as well because okay. obviously I have a sort of expertise in yes. that area. Yeah, and I've absolutely. Had the, I've had the opportunity to work in government in the US and the UK and I, I find it very fulfilling. Well, yeah, well, good luck. We hope you end up in a place that you're happy with. And where can people find you? Like, Twitter, email, ResearchGate, Google Scholar, that sort of thing. I do have a website that I try to keep updated, jnjoseph.com. And I am on Twitter as well, at Epsian, E-P-S-I-A-N. Although I I don't use it that much. I try. I try to. (laughs) We get it. (laughs) Yeah. But, right. but do check out my website because I put up nice interactive graphs of my papers. So if you want to see the criminal network from Chicago, you can click on it, drag nodes around, see how people are connected to each other. It is really cool. I spent some time on your website a couple of days ago, just looking around at it. Yeah. yeah and I also put up the full code base that I used to create this paper. And I, I'm doing the same for all of my papers. If, if you want to see how I did this, my paper... You know, the code from data cleaning to creating final plots is all linked on my GitHub. And I think that's important for transparency and reproducibility. So if you want to see how I did anything, it's all up there. Yeah, that's awesome. Kudos to you. It's the way I think it should be moving. So that's great. Definitely. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again, Jared. It was great talking to you and meeting you. And yeah, be in touch. Yeah. Thank you both of you for taking the time to talk with me yeah yeah thank you see you hey thanks for listening don't forget to leave us a review on apple Podcasts or itunes or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website thecriminologyacademy.com you can also follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at the crim academy that's t-h-e-c-r-i-m-a-c-a-d-e-m-y or email us at at crimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. time.